Good morning, you're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, we're going to be talking about virtual patching, toll fraud, and otherwise known as uh, the new version of that, just straight-up telecom fraud, which also involves fraud on your cell phone lines, uh, the Amazon Echo, and then the viability of running a virtual machine on a NAS, because this still seems to be quite a hot, interesting topic of contention lately. So I'm going to cover that in uh, technical detail and feasibility detail as to whether or not that's an approach that even makes any sense. So let's start off with uh, virtual patching. This is a massive big deal, and uh, virtual patching is basically a methodology whereby you create certain security rules at the network layer in order to close security holes, close vulnerabilities. That's why they call it virtual patching because you're not actually patching the underlying systems themselves. And the reason that virtual patching is so crucial is because uh, first off, you have certain types of systems that you really just can't patch anymore. And there's uh, an awful lot of companies that have them. And, uh, you know, for example, that might be a situation where a company has an application that they had paid uh, perpetual licensing means that they were permanently licensed for that software and they could afford it when it was hosted in-house, when it was perpetually licensed, they could afford it. Well, their, maybe their software vendor has now gone to a cloud-only model, and it just turns into financial unobtainium. And I know of at least one example of exactly that sort of thing happening. So the company is forced to keep an old system around running it as a virtual machine for, I guess, the indefinite future until some technical thing, you know, some sort of technical requirement makes that approach absolutely impossible. So what do you do then if you can't patch this thing? You can't install security patches on it anymore to keep it up to date because that operating system isn't supported anymore. Well, uh, you have to do virtual patching. So that's one example. There's another example uh, that is enormous, and it has to do with medical systems. So let's say you're looking at a, a Gendex scanner as a, a fine example, and or you know other brands of CT scanners made by General Electric, or any number of medical imaging equipment where you have the actual imaging equipment, but then that immediately feeds DICOM images into uh, a computer processing system, which I, I call it that because there's generally more than one computer involved. There's usually uh, kind of two, three computers involved, at least. Well, what if... You just, you can't patch that system. And I have yet to see a medical imaging system that can be fully and correctly patched. In fact, I've seen just a plethora of stupidity around these systems where, you know, they claim that their software is reliant upon Java, but then you can't update Java. 
or the machine itself is malfunctioning. I, I'm not exaggerating this. I've actually seen this. The machine itself is malfunctioning. The fix for the problem is to do a BIOS update on the system because there's a bug in the motherboard that needs to be patched. But the Gendex scanner company that makes the CT scanner will not allow the BIOS update to be installed on the system because they haven't certified that system with that particular patch. And, you know, they don't update things. They maybe go through an update cycle maybe once every six to eight years. So the problem that happens there is what do you do in the meantime? You know, and there, I literally saw ridiculousness from them where when Windows XP was no longer uh, supported, when Windows 7 was no longer supported, and newer operating systems were out, and we could have easily purchased uh, a significantly less expensive system that was fully supported and just put their uh, fancy little video card in there and then put their software on it, that was completely unacceptable to them. They refused to do any support on it. So it's it's a bit of a, a rigged market. And I would say the medical imaging equipment suppliers do an atrociously bad job. I mean, atrociously bad of managing their systems in an appropriate life cycle. And they're not keeping software up to date. They also have crazy requirements, such as they want that system to be uh, internet accessible. I'm not kidding you. They want it to be internet accessible so that they can have remote access support to the system. But then at the same time, they refuse to have endpoint security product on the computer system. And if you install any patches for Java, you know, or anything like that, uh, then they just, you know, they flip out. So they simultaneously want the computer to be connected to the internet and internet accessible. But yet they don't want to do anything to make it so that that process can happen securely. Well, what do you have then as an option? you pretty much have one option, which is called virtual patching, which means that you deploy network security rules in order to look at all of the network traffic going to and from that system and ensure that it is safe. You know, it's obviously five billion times more sophisticated and complicated than that, but that's effectively what you're trying to do. Now, that being said, virtual patching is not easy. It's really not easy. I mean, you you have to, it's really, really not easy. And uh, you have to have a very, very concerted, ongoing, consistent effort in order to have many layers of security, even at the network layer. You might have to have virtualized that system uh, or you might have to put a special piece of network equipment in between it and other systems, whether that be a virtualized network equipment or not, you know, but anyways, it's effectively what you're doing is 
intercepting all traffic to and from and writing very stringent rules. And then even for what you are allowing, you're doing very deep inspection on it. And I think that the reason that we continue to have so many breaches is because of two factors. Number one is that organizations to the vast majority, I mean, something in excess of like 80% of organizations are not patching in a timely fashion. I mean, I still hear of wailing and gnashing of teeth over the requirements of PCI compliance, which I think are extremely lenient. I mean, PCI compliance is composed of many facets, but one of these facets is that you're supposed to deploy all of the patches to the point of sale, PCI, uh, payment card industry involved systems within 28 days of the patch's release. Well, 28 days, I think, is a ridiculous time period. They should be able to get it done within 48 hours, seriously. Um, so 28 days is more than generous. And the reality is that the vast majority of organizations are still not hitting the 28-day marker. And Conducive, some months ago, put out a blog post where they were talking about how they spent a tremendous amount of energy to develop their latest generation of software that did not require a reboot in order to install it or update it. And the reason that they had put so much energy and effort into the development of that particular technology was because they were getting feedback from like 95% of their customers, which granted, I'll tell you, is mostly enterprise. Uh, but they were getting feedback from virtually every one of their customers that uh, rebooting their systems was just impossible. <laughs> You know, like they haven't rebooted their systems in six months and uh, they don't have a change window to allow. They don't have the allowable downtime to allow for the rebooting of these systems. And my, you know, from where I sit with more than 25 years of experience in the industry uh, and some significant numbers of years of that experience being involved directly in Fortune 500 companies, not being able to reboot a system for six months is beyond ridiculous. Most companies that I've ever worked with who did take security seriously, and this is the caveat, those that actually took security seriously came up with either a weekly change window or a uh, bi-weekly or a bi-monthly uh, change window where you'd either do it every, you know, I don't know, Thursday morning at 4 a.m., Wednesday evening, Sunday morning, whatever, you're picking some time frame. Or you say, okay, well, we're going to do it every other weekend of every month, or we're going to do it every other Thursday morning. And you can spread out, I, I think, the either the weekly approach is necessary uh, or the approach of doing it twice a month is necessary. Any less frequent than that is just ridiculous. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, you, you have to close these security gaps. You have to patch. 
but you also don't want to be doing all of your patches in one shot. You have a lot of systems to patch. More often than not, you have wireless network infrastructure, you have switching infrastructure, core network infrastructure, uh, workstations, software packages, servers, and you know, and I could go on and on and on. But it's there are so many things that need babysitting and maintaining and patching all of the time that if you try to cram all of that into a once a month patch cycle, you're never going to get it done. And you're changing too many things at one point in time in the organization, which is a danger into itself. So I'm a huge fan of either patch within 48 hours of the patch's release, which means you very well could be doing it at night. You could be doing an overnight patch. Some patches can and should just be hot deployed in the middle of the day. And we've been doing that for 20 years. And I've, I mean, if you know what you're doing with the patch, you can do that. And it's not an issue. But I, I would much rather look at, instead of coming up with some sort of a, an artificial patch window, which is what I think a lot of organizations do because it makes upper management happy about the technical things that they don't understand. I think it makes more sense to say, uh, okay, look, the IT department needs to use their judgment. If it's something that can be patched in the middle of the day, do it. If it's something that can be patched overnight, do it. Uh, we're all cognizant of what is referred to as a backout plan or a recovery plan. So if you look at a particular system and say, you know, look, I really just want to change just this one thing at this point in time, and I don't want to be changing anything else at the same time. So fine, let's just do that Wednesday night, uh, realizing that do we have enough time from the Wednesday night change window to, you know, Thursday morning in order to get the system back up and running if that was actually necessary. And if you can say yes to that, and if you're prepared to allocate that time to that, then, and you have appropriate backups and so forth, then you shouldn't have any problem doing it Wednesday night. And then you're completely isolating that change and no other change happened at that time to the organization. That in itself is actually the best risk management methodology available, is to completely isolate changes, do one thing at a time. So this fundamentally is an oppositional approach to this artificial, well, we're only going to have two change management cycles every month. You know, we're going to do it every other Thursday morning. So I, I think that I don't have really a problem with, say, upper management saying, you know, we're willing to accept a total network outage for two hours at 4 a, starting at 4 a.m. on Thursday morning. That's great because then the IT department can look at that and say, uh, okay, so for things that we deem are going to potentially be causing a full network outage or at least the perception of a full network outage to the end users, uh, then we're going to do it at that point in time. Um, so what I'm saying is it has to be a more sophisticated approach and certainly under no circumstances is an approach that says we're just not going to install the patches. That's just not an acceptable approach. And it ends up costing you 
obscene amounts of money in the long run when you don't keep things up to date. I mean, every single year, I up do a full upgrade on the accounting package that we use for the business. And that is because it is then a predictable process. It's a, it's a predictable project that is going to take a predictable amount of time. And then I'm not dealing with you know, old software having to deal with, even if it's just a functionality problem, I don't have to deal with that because I'm always using the latest and greatest software packages. The most amount of money that I've ever seen organizations have to spend in terms of IT costs, hard and soft costs, comes from not engaging in an approach of ongoing keeping things up to date. So holding on to old dead things and saying, oh, well, we can't change it or we can't upgrade it or it's going to cost too much money for the software package. We don't want to spend the money on the software package. So if you don't spend the money on the software package now, well, not only are you going to have to spend the money on the software package later, but you're not going to be able to control the timing of that expenditure. And there's a whole bunch of other mess associated with that as well. And it usually comes down to um, business urgency issues and software incompatibility issues. And uh, we have a client who uh, had just waited too long to upgrade their accounting package and their accounting package is very sophisticated and complicated. And uh, the result of it is they're paying obscene amounts of money to the software developer for that accounting package or the software support for that accounting package to be able to update all of the reports for the accounting package. And the reality is, is that this is something that should have been done six years ago. So when you delay and you don't take things in bite-sized chunks, then it becomes one enormous, ugly, horrifically expensive chunk that you really don't have control over the timing of. Instead, the crisis at hand is controlling the timing of. So virtual patching has a place, but it is not a substitute for actual patching. And this virtual patching topic is, its it, I think it's much more difficult for the small to medium business market to achieve. In fact, uh, I can't even begin to tell you of another IT consulting firm that I know of or have heard of that has the technical capabilities to actually do virtual patching correctly and that is because they just don't have network security architects in their employ so what then becomes an obtainable approach in the smb space and uh, that is just install the patches right <laughs> just actually install the patches all right well on a toll fraud here toll fraud i you know you'd think that this was a concept that had died some time ago and it hasn't it's not dead. Apparently, telecom uh, and tel toll fraud has completely morphed into a new, more insidious and pervasive risk that um, is actually very difficult to mitigate. Certainly, uh, no one person or no one organization could even mitigate this risk by themselves. And I'm going to post the article to this because it's very... 
technically detailed and they've got some really great diagrams in there about uh, how it is that cell phone carrier fraud is happening and how it's perpetrated. And uh, you know, if you're interested in seeing how uh, this whole uh, what was previously called toll fraud and now has morphed into just telecom fraud and, of course, cellular fraud in general has how that's morphed over time. Uh, please uh, check out the article associated with this show and the link to uh, that article about that topic will be posted. Now, I want to talk briefly about the Amazon Echo. You may have... Uh, you may know about the Amazon Echo being this sort of device that can answer questions and order things for you and do certain things. Well, the reality is that it's been actually proven that this device is recording all the time and it's recording private conversations. And uh, it's been referred to as the Imperial probe droid because it is effectively a, a device that is spying on you all of the time in your home whether or not you think you've activated it, but that's the reality of it. And this has been irrefutably proven because there was a homicide in a home with an Amazon Echo that was in that location. And a judge uh, provided a ruling that gave the authorities permission to examine the audio recordings from that Amazon Echo. And even though no one had spoken the word uh, Alexa in order to supposedly, you know, wake up the Amazon Echo device, the <laughs> all these recordings of all of this content that had been going on in that space were the uh, double homicide. It was actually a double homicide uh, where that had occurred. That you know, audio was available. So if you think that you have, uh, you know, an Apple device or an Amazon device or a Google device in your home and these things are not recording everything that's going on all the time, I think you're delusional. In fact, Google just put out another patent where as part of the patent application, they specified that their desire is to have a video surveillance of you in every room of your home so that they can track your behavior and predict what you might need to buy and send that to you to enhance the specificity of your advertising preferences. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're not totally creeped out by this stuff, I, I don't know what's going to. So uh, certainly... I don't advocate the procurement of any of those things. All right, so I want to finish up the show here with this topic of servers. You know, servers seem to be getting expensive, and so people are trying to find ways to not have an expensive server. They've looked into uh, virtualizing it and putting these things into cloud hosting accounts such as uh, Azure or Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud, these sorts of things. And uh, of course, I've already established this many times on this show previously, that if you simply run the numbers, in about 18 months of paying for a cloud-hosted uh, virtual server, you will have 
spent exactly the same amount of money as if you had bought a quality server with a seven-year warranty. So again, uh, 18 months of cloud hosting services is equivalent to if you had just done capital expenditure and bought the server yourself and put it in. All right. So, I mean, you know, is cloud, would they be doing cloud hosting things if it wasn't profitable? If it was cheaper for them? <laughs> um, you know, if it was... So no, no, they're not going to be doing cloud hosting services. They're not offering these cloud cloud hosting services if they're not making money doing it. Therefore, you have to ask the question, does it make sense for you to use those cloud hosting services? In some case it does, but I still don't see where hosting virtual servers is cost effective. I think it's a, a fantastic way to light money on fire and to have significantly increased uh, IT expenditures. Now, that being said, what are our different options for being able to host these things on premise? Of course, you have the real server approach, which uh, tends to be the only game in town in a lot of circumstances. We did some previous discussions about pre-made OEM appliances for various tasks, and I pretty much nixed those options because you could do it cheaper with higher quality and better better options, lower total cost of ownership if you were to not use an OEM appliance and just use a server that you had designed for the purpose. Uh, so finally, we come to this topic of can I just run a server on a NAS, on a network-attached storage appliance? There are... NAS is out there for sale, of course. Synology is the uh, primary uh, manufacturer of such things. And I've talked before about how Synology does not offer their Synology replacement service, which is a moderately acceptable hardware warranty. Um, they don't offer that on anything smaller than their 2U, which are two units in height, so it's a size specification. They're 2U NASs. So that has not, however, stopped them from offering many 1U NASs where they claim that you can do server virtualization cost effectively. Well, you can't if you cannot get a viable hardware response time warranty contract on that appliance. So that, that's a failure right there. But I did actual real testing, real scenario testing in a real environment with a virtual machine running on a NAS, on a Synology NAS. It was appropriately sized. It had plenty, and I mean plenty of resources, uh, basically the same sort of equivalent resources as what you would have on a real Dell PowerEdge server if that server had, if that um, virtualized server had been provisioned. So we're talking equivalent specs, equivalent horsepower. What I saw was that the performance on the NAS is just too slow for any level of satisfaction in my viewpoint. So would it be acceptable as a secondary domain controller 
Um, yes, probably as a secondary domain controller, but I would not use it as a primary domain controller and I wouldn't try to use it as anything else, really. I just wouldn't. And you have to accept that if you're going to run a virtualized domain controller on a NAS, your labor costs are going to be much higher just because the thing is, well, it's slow. It's just significantly slower. And you're going to have false positives potentially with monitoring. Patching it is going to be more time consuming. So again, your, lo your long-term total cost of ownership is going to be higher for something like that. I think it could work as a secondary domain controller, especially hosted off-site on an off-site NAS where you're, you were going to buy the NAS anyways. This is the key piece. If you're going to buy the NAS anyway in order to store off-site backups, then it does make sense at that point to get in a slightly larger, more appropriately sized NAS to be able to run that off-site domain controller uh, as a virtual machine on it. But outside of that, I'm not going to recommend that that strategy to you. So we're going back to the whole realm of sometimes you just need a real server. Well, that's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it.